What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I've got a great and special guest, the man, the green chicken, Doomberg, the most famous green chicken on the internet. We talk all about oil, uh, the energy shortage, the global macro economy, the potential of World War III, and much, much more. But as always, ladies and gentlemen, please remember that this is not financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast is strictly of the opinion of Doomberg and myself and should not be taken as financial advice. If you haven't already, smash that subscribe button wherever you get podcasts. And thank you so much for tuning in and being a fan of Green Candle and the Macro Insights Podcast. Big shout out to my sponsor, goldsilvervault.com. That's Idaho Armored Vaults. Bob Coleman and his team are bringing you the absolute best rates to get into the precious metals market and store them as well. Hell, if you want to store some weaponry, store some guns, you can also do that with them too. They offer a wide variety of products and services, so be sure to check them out at goldsilvervault.com. You can start the process online, even call Bob Coleman himself. His number's available online there. So uh, can you believe that? I mean, the CEO is letting him letting you access him whenever you would like so be sure to check them out and woo, woo, check out sovereign energy if you're into energy drinks just like i am need a little bit of that uh check out svrn.com or svrnenergy.com excuse me and use promo code green candle and you can get 10 percent off your entire order also hodlersofficial.com that's where you could get the coolest Bitcoin merch in the game. You could get baseball jerseys. They offer the white and the black, the Satoshi pack, smoking that Satoshi pack, promo code green candle, 10% off. All right, enough for me. Let's get into the episode. What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I've got the most famous green chicken on the internet, recurring guest now, second time back on, so I appreciate you coming back, but... Let's jump right in, right? We have a lot going on, obviously, with you know the Israeli uh, conflict, the Ukraine-Russia war. A lot has changed since we talked six months ago. We're creeping up on $100 uh, for crude, Brent crude oil per barrel as well. So a lot of crazy stuff. It seems like we're in kind of an energy deficit. Maybe we were talking about uh, you know this winter coming up, about being a potential energy crisis. So I'll leave it there for you, Doomberg. One, how are you? And two, like... Are we about to hit an energy crisis coming into this uh, last quarter of this year? Brandon, great to be back. Uh, doing great myself. Appreciate the opportunity to come back and enjoy another uh, great discussion with you. As it pertains to the energy markets, you know, there's at least three driving factors that you have to consider when you think about where oil and natural gas will go um, in the months ahead as we enter the, the winter of 23-24. First, obviously, and I think predominantly in the past week or so, and, and perhaps in the next couple of days or weeks, I think the price of oil is a proxy for the market's belief uh, into whether or not the situation in Israel spreads beyond the current um, battles between you know, the uh, Israeli army and, and, and their, their incursions into Gaza, and specifically whether war spreads to include you know, Hezbollah in the north and perhaps uh, uh, shortly thereafter, directly um, interacting with kinetically into interactions with Iran itself. And I think, you know, if the war does spread across the Middle East, then you could see oil prices spike materially higher from here. But the market is kind of signaling that they don't think it will. And, um, and that's the only logical interpretation that we can draw from the fact that WTI is back in the low 80s now after spiking up um, when hostilities first broke out. The second thing we have to worry about is the fate of the Russia-Ukraine war, which is still ongoing, even if it has slipped from the front pages. Much to the risk and chagrin of, of uh, Zelensky in Ukraine, one would probably argue, I think he would admit. Um, if, I mean, generally speaking, when Putin feels enabled and empowered, um, energy prices tend to go higher. Um, he has not a, he's shown a willingness to use his ample uh, commodity and energy resources as a geopolitical weapon, and who could blame him? I think we should assume that our geopolitical adversaries will behave in ways that optimize for them. Uh, and then the third, uh, perhaps most important one, is um, how, how does the weather play out in Western Europe? Uh, right now, if, if we look, uh, I like to follow the uh, seasonal trends in Frankfurt as sort of a proxy for 
Western Europe. I, mean, I know there are hedge funds that have sophisticated, you know, weather forecasting and tracking tools. I just look at the weather in Frankfurt, gives me, you know, 80-20 rule gives me a pretty good sense. And I would say so far in the early stages of late fall, uh, early winter, things are tracking slightly warmer than average, if perhaps slightly cooler than last year, but we shall see. That's the big third unknown. So how, how the war plays out in the Middle East, uh, in a, in a connected way, how the war plays out in Ukraine and Russia, and then how the weather treats our friends in Germany and, and Western Europe are the three things that are top of mind for us every day when we open up our Bloomberg. Yeah, and that's a great point, right? Obviously, you know, there's a lot of, you know, extraneous uh, geopolitical factors to say the very least. But it seems like the Fed, you know, especially since the last time we talked, they were raising rates at, you know, an astronomical uh, pace. They've slowed down a little bit. Um, but, you know, Powell has kind of kept his foot on the gas when it comes to, you know, higher for longer. He says that they're going to essentially, you know, keep rates elevated. And uh, it seems like that's kind of the, I guess, the lever that the U.S. is pulling, while as, you know, the, the other countries in Europe, like the BRICS countries, are kind of pulling the energy side of things. Is that, in a sense, the way you guys see it over at Doomberg? Or, um, you know, is there is there something... I guess that I'm missing here where uh, maybe it's not necessarily like a full economic type of war. I would say the two are related. I think Powell's need to continue um, hiking rates and or keeping them higher for longer, which is, I guess, the phrase of the day, is in fact interlinked and dependent upon the future price of oil and gas um, because one feeds the other. Um, in fact, many have argued that high interest rates are a driver of inflation in this cycle because it does make the, the discovery and development and production of new energy sources more expensive. Um, and we've never hiked rates at this pace with this much debt before. So perversely, the incremental amount of interest payments we're making are another form of fiscal stimulus, if you think about it. Um, sure, it's different than giving you know, blanket checks to everybody in the economy where the velocity of that money is, is high, but it is still cash deficit spending coming out of Washington that ends up in, in this case, the investor class's hands, but it does find its way uh, into the market, if albeit with a, with a lower velocity. Um, and so um, I, I do think that like, we wrote a piece for the chart that we followed perhaps the closest um, when we're pondering the impact of the energy markets on interest rates is the price of diesel, because diesel, of course, finds its way into virtually everything that, uh, that we consume, all physical products um, that find their way to the store shelf or get dropped off on your doorstep by Amazon um, at one point in their journey from the manufacturer to your home are, are transported by diesel. Um, diesel powers our cargo fleet, diesel powers our truck fleet, diesel powers, effectively diesel powers many of the homes in the US Northeast. And so if there's one chart that you wanna watch to see how the inflationary pressures are tunneling their way into uh, central bank considerations, we would, we would keep a close eye on the price of diesel. Yeah. And, you know, that that is all fair. And, you know, how did in a sense like, you know, how does this affect manufacturing? Right. I mean, there's been rumors of China invading Taiwan for for quite some time. Obviously, you know, Taiwan's one of the bigger manufacturing when it comes to the semiconductor industry. And obviously, you know, all these industries are, you know, related in a sense. Right. I mean, when we saw that the pandemic break out and, uh, you know, essentially manufacturing and uh, importing was slowed down. We saw, you know, a bunch of the after effects here in the U.S. with, you know, used cars going up uh, by astronomical amounts, you know, appliances, all these kind of things being greatly affected. Um, so in a sense, you know, how, how does this, uh, you know, I guess, affect the manufacturing aspect of, you know, things? Obviously, it seems like, you know, countries like the U.S. are trying to become more, I guess, independent and get away from more of, I guess, the global economy, but we're not there yet. So, you know, I guess in, in a sense, how does that all, all, all affect everything? You know, it's interesting because we're getting very mixed signals. So um, we have many friends in industry, of course, and even just, just this morning, BSF was out with terrible numbers. Not sure if you saw. Um, and, and our friends in manufacturing are signaling slowdown, recession, you know, um, red alert. And yet the latest uh, GDP print was, I think, what, 4.9% or something well above expectations. And so um, we're, we're honestly seeing very mixed signals. You know, there, there's all this talk about um, China and the property crisis and the slowdown in China. And yet, if you look at their energy demand, it's it's consistent with, you know, uh, historical uh, uh, flows uh, for, for a growing economy. And so um, it's pretty clear that the you know, imminent recession crowd 
may have been wrong, uh, but from a manufacturing sector, boy, I, I, I need to see more data. But you know, our channel checks are that um, it's been a pretty, pretty rough October. Yeah, and it seems like you know, I, I guess the the needle keeps getting moved, right? I mean, uh, you know, two quarters of negative GDP growth was essentially the uh, you know uh, the tracker for a recession before they've changed that definition since then. Um, and yeah, I mean, like you said, the the recession has keep getting pushed pushed farther and farther back because it seems like I guess the consumer strength has has kind of held true. Um, but you know, it seems like there's a lot of I guess cracks underneath the surface. Um, you know, obviously, you know, uh, unemployment is rising. Maybe the the job numbers and the validity of all this data that they're presenting to me seems very, I guess, faulty. If you if you know, you know, you have some connections in the industry, if you're just kind of talking to some people anecdotally. So, you know, I guess, what do you take of, I, I guess, the current situation that we're in, right? I mean, you know, I, it, to me, it seems like we're in a recession. But, you know, when you ask some other people in the financial space, seems like we're, we're still doing fine because the consumer is holding strong. I, to go back to the very first question of our discussion, I think it all just does depend, frankly, on, on how events transpire in the Middle East. I mean, th that is a dominant macro signal that will you know, cause several dominoes to fall. I mean, imagine if um, Lindsey Graham gets its way in the US. You know, we have, I think we have four aircraft carriers either there or on the way, which is a pretty historically large deployment and it usually doesn't occur um, without the, those people getting into some action. Um, imagine Lindsey Graham gets his way and we start bombing Iranian oil facilities and the price of oil spikes. Well, then I think recession risk grows substantially. Uh, I think the US economy can do pretty well, surprisingly well at $80 oil and 5% interest rates. Um, I would say if you told people a year ago that we would be at 5% interest rates, many people, including us, um, we would be the first to admit, would have assumed that the economy would have ground to a halt uh, much harder than it, it has. It has certainly demonstrated more resilience. I mean, again, I think if, if you said, would have said we're going to go from zero to 5% interest rates at the speed with which Powell did, um, many people would have been surprised and, and would have assumed that, quote unquote, something would have broken uh, between then and now. And and to be fair, it hasn't. And and the people who are in the soft landing, no landing camp have certainly proven correct. The other thing we watch, of course, is Japan. And I do think um, the Japanese yen this morning above 150 again, um, all kinds of intrigue in Japan, which is very difficult for Westerners to penetrate, of course. But um, you know, Japan's critical role in the US Treasury market and their struggles to defend their currency um, could be the sort of the, the macro story of the fourth quarter, assuming you know, things don't get measurably worse in the Middle East. And that's fair. And yeah, you brought up Japan and they've been recently selling off U.S. Treasure, treasuries. So, you know, it's since it seems like, you know, Japan has been willing to, in a sense, kind of help out the U.S. kind of, I, I don't know, not not necessarily like fall on their own sword, but, you know, they're essentially doing this to protect themselves. At least that's how I somewhat understand it. So, you know, I guess, what is the impact of this J Japan starting to sell off U.S. treasuries on the overall, uh, I guess, U.S. market? Well, again, if if Japan is selling U.S. treasuries, that doesn't help the U.S., of course. It makes Powell's challenge all the more difficult because um, that uh, will lead to a spike in rate. You know, if, if Japan is no longer going to be the marginal buyer of U.S. treasuries, and then that means there's one less bid in the market, and that means interest rates are higher. Now, it does some of the work for Powell. Of course, but that you know, there's a pretty distinct and negative correlation between what the ten-year is doing and what the Nasdaq is doing on any particular day, and that correlation tends to be you know negative. If 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 rates are spiking, Nasdaq sinks, and and vice versa. How long that you know cor correlation lasts um, remains to be seen. But that's why we point out that Japan is a big unknown because if they if they have to sell more and more of their holdings to defend their currency. And 150 is kind of like a line in the sand for them, um, you know, then it could spell uh, an interesting challenge for the U.S. policymakers. Yeah, and that's, you know, that that's, that doesn't seem great on the, on the surface, to say the very least. But I want to get back into the, uh, I guess, the oil and gas industry, right? Um, because, you know, it seems like that was, I guess, a big topic of conversation at the beginning of this year. And, you know, obviously uh, due to what we lined out, you know, obviously geopolitical factors and things like that uh, towards the end of this year. But 
Um, you know, I guess how is that developing on the the U.S. side of things? Like, is, do you foresee the U.S. trying to become more independent? Obviously, you know, you've been very vocal about the ESG policies and you know that aspect of things. Um, and you know, it seems like obviously the current party uh, has been uh, deploying all the reserves. It's you know there was something viral going around that said we only had 14 days left of our our current oil reserves, which has proven to not really be true from my understanding. Um, but I don't know if you could provide a little bit more clarity on that and kind of kind of where we're going. Sure. Um, so there's a bit of you always have to be mindful of what you're reading on Twitter um, for its validity. Um, so the SPR, let's talk about the SPR first, and then we'll talk about U.S. energy independence second. Um, the SPR was created uh, at a time when the U.S. policymakers believe that the country had reached and was on terminal decline. It had reached peak oil production and it would never recover. And um, on the heels of the uh, oil crisis in the 70s, the SPR was conceived um, and built and filled um, at a time when policymakers felt like the deficit that we would need would, would never could never be filled domestically. Um, and so that's an important context to consider now. Of course, we've argued that the Biden administration for political reasons, did empty roughly half of the reserve. That's a scandal. It shouldn't have been. It shouldn't be legal. Um, but the U.S. is actually a net energy exporter today. Uh, we're a major producer of oil and especially natural gas. Um, we still import oil and we export oil because of a mismatch in the grades between the types of grades our refinery fleet prefers to run versus the types of grades that are being produced in the Permian today where most of the growth is. Um, but the US is, is, the, is the world's largest producer of oil. It is a net exporter of refined products. And so things like the, um, the number of days that we have in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is, is highly misleading um, because the US could always halt exports uh, and keep many of these refined products at home uh, and so on. Now, of course, it would disrupt the market and come with all other second and tertiary consequences. But the need for the SBR is not what it was when it was built and conceived and constructed. Um, that doesn't make it any less of a scandal that Biden emptied it. Um, but we think that that era is over. I don't think we don't think they'll ever really refill it. Um, but the, the, the days of a million barrels a day, putting a cap on oil price flowing out of the U.S.'s SBR uh, are probably behind us. That doesn't necessarily mean that China won't take the baton from us. They have a very large um, strategic petroleum reserve themselves. And unlike the US, they are in fact deficit uh, consumers of oil. They, they, they don't produce nearly enough of, of oil for their domestic needs. And so they are keenly interested in managing the, the price of oil um, as well. And so uh, we shall see, but there is that. And then there's a final, um, a final sort of cap to the price of oil that the market perceives, which is that the fact that Russia and Saudi Arabia voluntarily cut so much production from the market that could very easily come back online. Um, that that there's probably some concern that, you know, um, but that there's a sort of a sweet spot price for oil where both producers and consumers like to be, which is in this seventy to ninety dollar range. You know, in these ranges, um, the oil producing companies, countries, sorry, can can make a lot of money, they can fund their domestic needs. And the oil consuming countries aren't in such stress that they uh, enter into a recession. And so uh, I think um, both sides of the equation are comfortable with this equilibrium price of around 80 plus or minus $10 a barrel. And we saw it as soon as it you know shot above 90, um, it was brought right back down again. And so um, I, I think there's probably a, a, a fair bit of tug that equilibrium price. But the, the US, you know, this 14 days of, or 19 days, I think it was, that's, that's you know, not very meaningful in the context of today. Yeah, and that's understood. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I appreciate you kind of, uh, I, I guess, shedding some light on the SPR and kind of that that aspect of things. But um, you know, obviously, because it, the U.S. is like a net producer, and, and you said that the, the sweet spot is where we're kind of sitting right now. Um, you know, obviously, that the doom and gloom is what gets gets the clicks right at, at, at a certain point in time. Um, but there has been obviously, you know, what we said earlier, you know, you got to be cautious about what you're reading on Twitter and some of these other sources. But, uh, you know, it seems like there's, I guess, growing fear that, you know, crude Brent crude is going to go over $100 a barrel. Do you ever foresee that, uh, that I guess, occurring maybe in the next, uh, I guess, six to 12 months, I'm putting you a little bit on the spot sure. here a little bit. 
prediction. But... Oh, of course. I think oil could go to $200 a barrel in the next six weeks if the geopolitical world um, explodes. But look, there's also another very dangerous trend that we even hesitate to write about sometimes because you don't want to give people any ideas. But with the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, and now the destruction of this pipeline in Finland, this underwater natural gas pipeline, we are beginning to normalize the wanton destruction of critical energy choke points as uh, sort of international tit for tat here. And that's very dangerous. And so you can imagine, you know, attacks on refineries, attacks on critical oil pipelines, um, foreign terrorists, uh, infiltrating the U.S. and blowing up key infrastructure. Like, if you think about 9-11, as terrible as it was, like, um, the, the economy can continue to function with, you know, uh, the loss of of the buildings and, and damage to the Pentagon. Um, but if you, if you target the right infrastructure, you know, there's a lot of attacks on transformers and, and uh, the power grid, you know, a coordinated assault with several dozen terrorists blowing up the right choke points could really put the country in a lot of hurt. And that in turn could trigger a massive military response and, and so on. And, and again, like Senator Lindsey Graham, it should be, should be ashamed of himself um, for going on TV and demanding that we proactively strike the oil refineries of Iran as punishment. Um, that's dangerous talk and could lead to self-fulfilling prophecy. So th let's just take that forward. Um, who, who is the number one, um, a provider of oil to China today? Well, it's Iran. They just overtook Saudi Arabia. Um, do you think if we blow up Iran's oil, first of all, what happens to the price of oil? Second of all, China looks at Taiwan and looks at its current reserves and decides that maybe it, it's go time because they, they're never going to have as much oil as they do today. Um, and so next thing you know, um, dangerous talk by a, a, a warmonger senator in the U.S. leads to a cascading series of dominoes. And we find we wake up one day and oil is, you know, um, $200 a barrel, and the economy is sent into a tailspin. Um, that's totally possible. I, I, I don't think it's likely. I mean, I think our, our base case is, um, you know, range bound between 70 and 90. Um, I don't see it going much lower than 70 or much higher than 90, and unless something catastrophic happens, in which case it could pierce both. It will spike and then collapse as the economy you know, gets crushed in between. And the one thing that's really dangerous for the economy, of course, is volatility. The absolute value of the price of energy, given enough time, can be worked through the, the, the supply chains. It's the volatility where people get stuck. You know, they, if you buy oil and you transform it into something and you pay for it when it's high and then the economy collapses, then you get in big trouble. And, you know, it, it, the volatility is really what kills people. Gotcha. And yeah, I mean, obviously there's a, you know, you know, it seems like the current party in office is not doing, I guess, a great job when it comes to, you know, the, the relationship, especially with China. You recently published an article about, you know, the geopolitical warfare. And one of the things you highlighted was uh, the uh, graphite production and how just astronomical uh, China's production is in the global share of things. You know, obviously we've been talking about, you know, oil and the energy markets, but I guess what is the impact of, I guess, you know, China essentially having a monopoly when it comes to graphite production? Like what what uh, if, if, you know, the, the tensions rise and essentially, you know, China essentially cuts off the U.S., like how would that affect us going forward? Yeah, we wrote a piece called Geopolitical Warfare, where we made an observation that is, I think, evident to people who have spent a fair amount of time in industry, but perhaps not so obvious to those who um, have not. This is something we've grown up with. Um, so in theory, of course, cost differences between producers should be driven by things like technology and innovation and so on. Um, but in reality, um, costs, uh, differences between commodity producers and mature industries are almost always driven by the answer to one simple question, which is how much are you allowed to pollute? And that sounds like a weird question to ask, but um, transforming materials, the key driver of the cost is how do you, how um, how do you handle the waste and the pollution that comes with it? And um, China, as a strategy, um, allows its domestic producers to pollute you know, recklessly, which allows their domestic producers to have a much cheaper cost, which allows them to take market share. And so the chart that we showed in the piece for graphite is indistinguishable from any of a dozen charts that we could have picked. Um, China, it, as a general rule, if a commodity is deemed critical and producing it is environmentally taxing, 
China inevitably comes to dominate it. And in that piece, we argued that if there's a certain subset of minerals that we deem to be in the national interest to produce domestically, there's no getting around the fact that we should be proactively compensating producers to imp, you know, impose the strictest pollution standards that we have come to expect in the West. But we can't mandate that they do that and then expect them to be able to compete with China. You know, if, you're, if your competitor's idea of a water treatment plant is a pipe to the river, you, the Western producers are never going to be able to compete on price. And so that's why China controls dominant share in gallium and germanium and the processing of rare earth metals, which are needed for all manner of electronics and motors and so on. They're, they're used for magnets. Um, China has 100% share of that. China has 100% share of the polysilicon ignite and wafering uh, parts of the supply chain. So even though we make polysilicon here, we have to send it to China for processing. Um, we should get together as a country. We should get serious about our national security needs from the manufacturers of commodities. We should make the list of the things we want to make here, and we should support the manufacturers willing to do it and by giving them money. Um, that, that this goes against what conservatives would say is free market economics, but in reality, the free market fails in at least three regards. Um, it fails to account for environmental damage. Um, given the freedom to do so, companies will pollute uh, in the chase for short-term profits. That's just undeniable. It fails to account for um, uh, national security interests, uh, you know, uh, as we just described. So there's all kinds of failure modes uh, of the free market. And in this case, um, because of the national security concerns, um, we, we should get serious about, look, we're, the first step in all of this is we should admit that we're in an economic war with China and um, we should um, behave accordingly. No, hundred percent. And that, that's, that's what really worries me, obviously, you know, with, with all of, you know, the geopolitical tensions is that, you know, it seems like it's been kind of, I guess, teetering on the edge here of the U S and China kind of, I guess, uh, I, I don't even know, like essentially like uh, who, who's the real power of the globe. And obviously, you know, the U S has been almost shooting themselves in the foot with all these ESG policies, which has made us more reliant on China as you've outlined here. Right. I mean, you need a bunch of these, earth metals in order to make a lot of the electronics right and we're trying to move towards just you know strictly electronic vehicles trying to go to more environmentally friendly but in a sense you know everything needs to produce be produced and shipped over there which would use you know gasoline and it just seems like kind of i guess all backwards in a sense so you know i guess has there been somewhat of a shift away from the esg narrative that seemed to be kind of at the forefront of, uh, you know, everybody's mind back in, you know, three, four years ago or so. You know, it's not even ESG, though. It goes well beyond ESG. So just take magnesium, for example. The entire automotive supply chain depends on magnesium because it, you know, enables lightweighting of vehicles and aluminum composites and so on. China, we used to make an enormous amount of magnesium in the U.S. It was done in Freeport by a company known back then as Dow Chemical. And um, it, it's it's an environmentally dirty thing to do. And um, Given the relatively strict pollution requirements that come with permits in the Western Hemisphere and, and the developed nations, um, it became impossible for Dow to compete against foreign competitors who were not held to the same standard, and they shut the plant down. The, the U.S. produces no, no magnesium now, and China basically has a global monopoly on it. And that, that tiny material um, goes into all, all manner of important supply chains, ESG or not. Um, chips, semiconductor chips. These are in Taiwan, and this is a big driver, of course, of much of the tension between the U.S. and both China and the U.S. are in this arms race to um, to try to develop their own domestic supply of high-end um, fabrication factories. But that actually is a very, very challenging thing. It's a, it's more of an art than a science. And the most important people in the world are the lab technicians that know how to make the uh, semiconductor factories run in Taiwan. Um, that's a very difficult to to, to replicate, it's, it's a moat really. And so if China and Taiwan um, do embark on a kinetic war, um, there's huge threats to the entire economy again, well beyond ESG. ESG has made it worse, of course, because China has maneuvered to monopolize the specific choke points, specifically solar and battery materials and rare earths and so on. Um, and graphite is just a warning shot to the US that it can and will use such power uh, if it perceives that the US is being too bossy with it. Um, and so that's why we say the first thing we have to do is realize that we're in a war and then we need to fight accordingly. Like, but this is not a, you know, if, if China is making all of our weapon systems, then who, who has the leverage? 
Like, it's very, very simple, Brandon, like you and I can say it, but like, because we run a free market economy and because our companies are beholden to Wall Street for quarterly reports, you lose those market inefficiencies. Those externalities are improperly priced. The environmental degradation is improperly priced. The national security interest is impro improperly priced. No individual company is optimizing around national security. That means we have, must have the government to do it. And then finally, the last point I should say is GDP is a particularly terrible measure of the value of having back integration into these energy and commodity supply chains. Them, they're treated as equal to the services industry, where you know the number of people um, working at movie theaters is counted as the equivalent of the value, quote unquote, assigned to the oil that we produce. They're just radically different. And GDP does a very bad job of measuring the importance of certain sectors. This was proven when Putin first invaded Ukraine. And analysts in the West were sort of poo-pooing his geopolitical power because he, quote, has a small economy and they were using GDP as the measure. As we found out, he has a substantial share of the uh, export market for critical commodities and GDP is a terrible measure of his geopolitical influence, um, much to the chagrin of policymakers. Yeah, and and I mean, you know, you're you're nailing all this on the the head. It seems, and it, you know, I mean, it it is a very drastic situation, and it seems like, you know, I, I guess China has the, uh, you know, a sense like a leg up on us just because of everything that we rely on them for. The one thing that we do do is is spend a shit ton on you know defense spending, and that's been always the narrative is that the U.S. you know no matter what, like everybody's in a sense almost afraid of the U.S. and you know because we one control the monetary policy and have the strongest military in the world. Obviously, we saw like that that fear kind of wane when you know we left Afghanistan the way that we did, um, and you know essentially you know it got taken over right away. I, I believe it less than a week after we we left. So you know, do do you think that that is I guess playing in a factor that our military, you know, was once was you know I guess known as the the most powerful military in the world. Maybe it still is, but I mean that that fear of being the most powerful military in the world is in a sense just kind of waning. Well, if you want to freak yourself out, <laughs> head, well, head I mean, over. Let me get, send, I'll send your readers to a good friend of ours, uh, a fantastic Substack by, written by Matt Stoller called Big, um, bignewsletter.com, or just Google Matt Stoller Big. And he writes about monopoly and monopoly power and how damaging it is. And he put out a piece on October 20th, which after I read it, you just have to put it down and shake your head. It's called Why America is Out of Ammunition. So as it turns out, um, we're running out of bombs. We're running out of ammunition. Why? Because the companies that have served the military, um, you know, that you know, people would call the sort of military industrial complex, has become ever more concentrated in fewer and fewer companies. They're fat and happy living on the hog, and they are allocated money by the Pentagon, and then they buy back shares instead of making weapons. And um, it's really a scandal, a corruption, grift, scandal of epic proportions and makes one wonder just how strong, quote unquote, the US military um, actually is. Uh, it's a really stunning piece. And Matt is a, is a, a nonpartisan, by the book, great reporter who only researches and writes about one issue, which is the damaging consequences of monopoly power. And, and I really respect his, his focus because this is his, his the issue that he is most passionate about but when you when you read that piece um it's pretty incredible and, and and scary like for all this money we're spending how could we be out of bull how could we be out of bullets where's it going staggering yeah and i mean you know back to you know all, all the money that we're spending you know i i believe that it came out yesterday or maybe the day before we're recording this on uh october 31st that the u.s is looking to to borrow 70 776 billion in this last quarter so i mean it seems like you know no matter what it, government spending keeps on increasing and increasing and we're essentially either sh sending that overseas to the ukraine or other places but you know in a sense like I guess, how do you, what is the overall like outlook for the, the U.S. bond market in a sense? You know, I know we, we've kind of touched on energy and, you know, the, the rising geopolitical tensions, but, uh, you know, in a sense, it seems like the overall, just like monetary policy of everything, the United States as it stands, we're teetering on the edge here of a lot of uh, doom and gloom. 
Um, is there any positive outlook that we can find in this? Or is the U.S. bond market essentially kind of signaling that, you know, the crash is coming? Well, it's, it's look, I think long term, of course, we are deeply optimistic about the U.S. It has incredible assets, um, like unbelievable assets, uh, great institutions. Um, but in the near term, it is kind of scary to look at things. Um, yeah, we're going to run what, like a, a $2 trillion in deficit during a time of economic growth? What happens if we hit into a recession? What happens if the stock market collapses and capital gains taxes stop flowing in? Um, it's it's pretty, you know, we're, we're, many people believe we're on the cusp of what is known as fiscal dominance, where you, you know, keeping up with your interest payments causes you to go into a debt spiral. Um, that's often associated with emerging markets, not with the gatekeeper of the world's global currency reserve and the, and the owner of the strongest military. Um, we have $33 trillion in debt, you know, as a big chunk of which is rolling off in the next five or six years. And if interest rates stay this high, you know, anybody can do the math of 33 trillion times 0.05. That's like, to a rough approximation, 1.8 trillion in taxes, in interest payments alone. Sorry, 1.8 trillion. I'm old enough to remember when a trillion dollars was a lot of money. Like it's staggering, um, and I mean, if if we could go back to the 1980s or bring somebody forward from the 1980s and they would see our fiscal situation, it would be unrecognizable. Um, it's crazy. I, I don't know what to say. Yeah, it, it feels like the wheels are are spinning. And look, it, well, for all of this talk about um, about you know the Republicans, and we wrote a piece called Minority Report where we analyzed the the potential geopolitical and domestic implications of uh, McCarthy's ouster from the speakership. Um, this new House Speaker, well, the first thing we're still contemplating, you know, sending tens of billions of dollars overseas. Why don't we fix our bridges and roads and dams here? Um, you know, but we're spending money as though there are no consequences. And, and we are, I think, entering a very, very dangerous period. Yeah, and it seems like the current party in power is, you know, just really adamant in helping everyone overseas. Um, and, you know, obviously we're, we're recording this like, you know, Q4 2023 there's an election coming up. Obviously, there's a, there's a lot of potential, you know, uh, uh, things that ramifications that could come to that. A lot of political jousting is about to take place, to say the very least, in the next uh, six to nine months before this election. So, you know, in a sense with that, like, obviously, you know, the politicians are going to do what what benefits the politicians first and foremost. And it seems like, you know, there there really isn't anybody that I guess is on the, the American people's side. Um, but, it, you know, I guess, like, what, what's the solution for all this, right? I mean, like, there, you know, it seems like we're essentially going to, I guess, outbreak here. And, you know, there's a lot of pro problems domestically. But, you know, it seems like the, the political uh, people, the powers that be are more concerned with what's going on overseas. Um, so in a sense, like, yeah, I, I guess like if you were, if you were in power here, what, what would you do in order to, I guess, kind of flip things on the head and, you know, try to help us domestically? It's funny you should say that because we have, uh, we have two subscription tiers at Doomberg, our regular subscribers who get all the articles. And then we have a pro tier where we publish a monthly Doom Zoom and we just put out yesterday, um, our October Doom Zoom. It was titled, um, if Doomberg were king, um, and so we go through in 65 slides exactly what we would do. And uh, of course, to us, um, all roads start with energy. And so we would um, totally change our focus on energy. We would um, develop an optimized equation where we we look at what we call the fundamental trade-off equation of total net energy produced divided by impact on the environment. And we have to consider both. And that's the equation that we would try to drive higher and higher and higher. We would you know, revolutionize our nuclear sector. We would fire everybody who works at the NRC and build it over from scratch. We would make the head of the NRC a cabinet level position. Um, we would uh, encourage the domestic drilling of oil and gas with good pollution controls and developing optionality around carbon capture and sequestration. Um, we would put a moratorium on offshore wind uh, and cancel all of those projects. Um, we would maintain our existing hydroelectric dams. We had a whole series of uh, policy proposals that we would recommend if we were king. And in our view, if you produce an enormous amount of net energy abundance, then that comes with it, cures to your economic problems and cures to your geopolitical weaknesses. Um, and so um, this is something that we've given a lot of thought to. Um, those listening who are interested, you can become a ProTier subscriber and, and 
get the full archive of all of our presentations that we've been doing. We do one of these a month on average, um, where we do a deep dive with you know PowerPoint slides and, and a full recorded presentation. So we just did that yesterday. Yeah, I guess a little peek behind the hood. I'm not going to lie to you. I have the uh, the Doomberg some Substack open in one of these tabs, so I did see that before uh, when I was uh, preparing for this interview here. Um, so I was kind of curious to see how much I I could get out of you, but I mean, I I did have a feeling that it was gonna <laughs> it was gonna revolve around energy because you know obviously you guys are you know great when it comes to the energy markets and things like that, and, and you know energy is the lifeblood of, of the society here too. So you know obviously we've we've talked a lot about that, but you know the monetary policy. And uh, that aspect of things has has really changed the overall like landscape of everything, too. So um, before I let you go, I want to kind of take a dive into Jerome Powell and the Fed, because it seems like there was, I guess, conflicting narratives when it came to you know his job and, and what he was doing at the beginning, because obviously he raised interest rates at such a dramatic pace. Everybody thought that something would break. You you even mentioned it earlier. And, you know, to his credit, nothing has really break. Maybe like a couple big bank failures. But, you know, from all accounts, it seems like those uh, the risk management at the, those banks weren't uh, exactly up to, um, you know, some, some high standards. Um, so, you know, with the higher for longer, that has been his mantra. You know, how do you uh, I guess what do you one? I'll just give, leave it broad. Like, what do you think of the job that he's doing? Uh, essentially, like, you know, I guess pulling the only lever that he can and pulling it as strong as he really as strong as he really can when it comes to uh you know keeping interest rates as high as he has so i would say it's hard to judge a man who is in an impossible job you know um seems like an intelligent guy seems like a patriot seems like he's generally trying to do the right thing but ultimately he's been handed uh you know 30 trillion in debt deficits as far as the eye can see um and raging inflation you know and to be fair to Jerome Powell you know this is decades in the making and so to expect one individual to make a meaningful impact on what is just undeniably a, a trajectory um is, is a little unfair to Jerome Powell and of course we like to develop scapegoats and history likes to pick winners and losers and so on and, and so that's fine um but I would say you know Given the hand he was dealt, um, I when I listen to the man speak and when I read the notes, um, he, he seems to be trying to do his best with the information that he has. And and as you say, interest rates are higher, inflation is down, and the economy hasn't broken. So by those measures, full credit to Jerome Powell. It remains to be seen. It's a bit of a TBD. Um, as you may recall, in the 0809 financial crisis, um, uh, a lot of bombs went off, um, and then there was a quiet period before, you know, everything really hit the fan. And the big question is, uh, we've pulled the pin, and the grenade hasn't gone off. Is it a dud, or does it just have a long fuse? Um, and the longer it goes, where nothing breaks, and the economy has a chance to adapt to higher interest rates, um, I guess the argument would be that the grenade was a dud. Um, but, but we shall see. There is some countervailing forces. There's real forces that are driving the economy. There is a distinct effort to onshore and reshore and nearshore to reroute supply chains out of China and other high risk you know, areas. There is continuing technological breakthroughs in the energy sector. There is a global nuclear energy renaissance that's beginning to, to unfold. The US does produce an enormous amount of natural gas, which is selling for dirt cheap levels today in the country, which gives us enormous manufacturing advantages. You know, If you could source your energy domestically and price your products uh, at global prices, and, and uh, natural gas is a big input into your uh, manufacturing facility, and it is for many manufacturers, then you're at a huge advantage. Um, and so there's, there's lots of things going well for the US, and it's, it's important, even you know, Doomberg, uh, it's important for us to recognize those things. As analysts, you want to get it right. You don't want to be you know, um, just doom and gloom for the clicks, as you said earlier. Um, so well, what does the US have going for it? it, it natural gas up the wazoo we have so much of it we don't know what to do. we burn it in the field that's how much we have um we have again we refine we have more refining capacity than we need domestically we have enormous um systemic advantages like deep water ports and extended river systems to move products around cheaply and we have amazing farmland and soil um we have we grow more food we bur we burn food as fuel um as a luxury as an esg luxury that's how wealthy we are we have Universities where every brilliant person in the world is trying their best to get in, and our broken immigration system is is hampering it. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of tailwinds. We have so much tailwinds 
that we are able to tolerate uh, a political leadership cl class that is so corrupt and so stupid and so ineffective uh, at historical levels. And yet most of us are living pretty decent lives and wouldn't know the difference. Um, that's remarkable. Imagine how powerful we could be if only we had King Doomberg in charge. Uh, then life would be great. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like that. I like that, man. But, um, you know, I, I know I did say that that, that was going to be like before I let you go. But, you know, I mean, obviously we have we've been talking about the Fed, the monetary policy. I'd be remiss to not ask you about, you know, the the proposal that BRICS has made, um, you know, and, uh, you know, I guess yeah, the growing, I guess, issue when it comes to um, the dollar and kind of that uh, reign of power, right? I mean, we've even had you know Robert Kennedy Jr. or Robert F. Kennedy Jr. here domestically say that he would back the dollar with more hard assets, right? I mean, and uh, whether that's gold, uh, real estate, he even mentioned Bitcoin as well. We've had the BRICS currency or the BRICS propose a currency, whether it's a cryptocurrency or whatnot, um, is you know remains to be seen. But I guess, what do you take of uh, the U.S.'s reign on, um, I guess, like the global currency, uh, the global reserve currency power. Do you think that that is is waning in a sense just because of, you know, one, the rising geopolitical tensions and two, kind of, I guess, the actions of Jerome Powell to, to leave, uh, you know, essentially like killing the global uh, the global or the offshore dollar market, excuse me. I, I would say the strength of the U.S. dollar system is pretty robust. We would fade near-term alarmism uh, in this regard. Um, in the long run and in the worst case, I think we could see a bifurcation, but the G7 countries in the developed world are in the US dollar system to stay. That is a significant amount of global GDP. At the margins are people frustrated with the fundamental problem, as Luke Roman has, I, I think, correctly identified for years, is really comes down to energy again. So countries that are stuck settling their energy purchases and sales on the other side of the equation would like to get out from under um, the US dollar as the currency in which these commodities are marked and treasuries as the excess reserve holding uh, entity for producers of excess electricity. And we're seeing some of that certainly at the margins. Um, and that will begin to undercut you know, US geopolitical power. And this is a knowing strategy of China that they have been embarking upon since the global financial crisis and when Ben Bernanke basically broke the commitment of U.S. Fed chairs to make the U.S. dollar quota as good as gold for oil. Um, and, and this is, again, something we've lifted completely from Luke Roman's great work and uh, always happy to give credit. Um, and so in the financial crisis, Bernanke had a choice. Does he rescue the domestic market or does he uh, preserve the U.S. dollar uh, as the reserve currency and as as the, basically the equivalent of gold for for energy transactions. And what I what, what I mean by that is when you sell energy and you don't have a place to put it, you store it in U.S. treasuries because the U.S. dollar would be as good as gold for oil. Um, and you don't put it in gold. Well, um, the reason why the BRICS developments are of such keen interest to many people on financial Twitter is because of the tie-in to gold returning to its role as a reserve, uh, a neutral reserve asset. Um, and and with all, all gold spiking above 2000 and people watching the price of gold in Shanghai versus London, it's certainly very interesting and we've written about it, but we, we think this will be a gradual trend, um, not necessarily like um, how Afghanistan fell apart all at once. You know, There won't be people clinging to planes as um, crates of U.S. dollars are flown out of hostile territories. Yeah, and I mean that that makes complete sense, right? I mean, I, I I subscribe to that theory as well that it's going to be like a slower transition away from the U.S. dollar if it even gets to that point. Um, you know, and you know, obviously, there's a lot of people who think that it's going to, I guess, flip on its head. But it, you know, in well, a sense, yeah, go ahead. There's there's actually reasons why that would be a good thing for the U.S., including it would give us the opportunity to rebuild our manufacturing base. I mean, one of the unfortunate consequences of being the reserve currency is the need to produce all of these treasuries. Um, and and therefore, what happens as a consequence is we have our manufacturing base hollowed out. Um, and if we're going to step away from being the reserve currency in some settings, that does open up the possibility of a weaker US dollar leading to you know advantaged manufacturing and so on and, and making the US uh, national security issue um, you know um, a bit more robust. And in fact, Groman does argue that the military would like to see the U.S. lose its reserve currency position um, because it is more concerned about uh, robustness 
in its in its critical supply chains. Um, and so there's arguments to be made that a, a slow chipping away of this is actually by design and, and positive for the US. Um, and, and we would be inclined to, to be supportive of that view. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that that's interesting. I'll have to check out that that piece on uh, that Luke Groman wrote, because I, you know, I thought it would be the opposite. Obviously, you know, I thought that that was, you know, I, I guess the power uh, or the, the ability of the US to, you know, I have the global reserve currency was essentially, you know, a big and been part why we're, you know, one of, I guess, known as the the most powerful nation in the in the world, or at least, uh, you know, for now. So um, yeah, that, that's, uh, yeah, I guess I, I recommend everybody to go check that out, because I definitely will be. Yeah, let this. me, let yeah. me give a proper plug for his work. Because again, I'm always happy to, to share great work. Um, you can find his stuff. It's just Google force for the trees. It's not a piece. It is literally a decade's worth of writing. Um, he publishes a weekly note called tree rings. Um, I should say it's 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 a little more pricey than Doomberg. It's it's three times the cost of Doomberg. It's meant really for, I think his main products are institutional, and then he has this retail product that I subscribe to, and I read it every Friday when it comes out. Uh, Forest for the Trees, Luke Groman. You'll find it if you just Google that. But um, instead of that, you should probably start with Doomberg. Get the appetizer, and go to doomberg.substack.com uh, and become a subscriber there. And then you know after that, if you can still afford it, head over to go see Luke. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. And I was just going to give you a chance to, to, to plug it, your stuff. But yeah, I, I highly recommend Doomberg Substack, whichever tier that, that you seem fits you. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't get the the why Doomberg or King Doomberg full, uh, you know, 40 slide for for everybody here uh, to give a little preview. But I do appreciate you giving us a peek under the hood and giving us some of the, the great nuggets from that. But um, yeah, outside of the Substack, uh, where else can everybody find you? Our, uh, I guess, track on, on what you guys are doing. Yeah, that's the main place. We've um, left Twitter and focus exclusively on the Substack ecosystem. You can find us at doomberg.substack.com. From there, you can find all of our articles. You can find our pro tier um, with that presentation. And you can find a, a special dedicated web page um, for all of our podcast appearances. And this one will, will be put up uh, on that link. And, um, and notes, which is the mild Twitter knockoff that Substack is developing where we do any of our sort of daily posts and updates and stuff um, over there. And that's kind of a fun little ecosystem. It's much friendlier than Twitter. It's a little smaller, a little more intimate. Um, a lot of great writers on Substack, a lot of really great reporting happening on Substack. We're big fans of the Substack team. Um, and so, yeah, doomberg.substack.com. And look, Brandon, it was great. Time flies by every time we talk. Looking forward to uh, a third appearance soon. Yeah, for sure. So Doomberg, yeah, thanks so much for coming here on and uh, thanks for your time. And everybody check out his Substack to say the very least. Check him out on, on Substack Notes and anywhere else uh, that, that he just previously mentioned. And yeah, Doomberg, thanks so much.